Welcome to the Queer Confidence Podcast, the podcast to help you become your most confident queer self. I'm your host, he, she, they, Coach Alex Ray, and I haven't always been this confident. In fact, I used to be super insecure. And through this show, I want to share with you what's worked for me, my clients, and my guests so that you can become more confident. Hello, my unicorns. Welcome back to another bonus episode. Today's special guest is Mike Balaban, and I am so excited to have him on the podcast today because we've got this issue in our community of um, some ageism, and we are kidding ourselves by and and just really missing out by not learning the lessons of the queer people who have gone before us. We're acting like we're learning these things for the first time. We're not. So I really want to have Mike on because he's kind of an accidental gay historian. (laughs) And he is a boomer who is way more popular on Instagram than me and shares all about uh, his stories and stories of others in the gay community. He's got some amazing thirsty photos um, with actual substance to it. So. With no further ado, welcome, Mike, to the Queer Confidence Podcast. Hi, Alex. Glad to be here. Thank you for coming today. So, tell us a little bit about how you became... Actually, first of all, we want to talk about Bammer, because that is like your your username across all the platforms. Tell us a little my bit last, about that. My last name is Balaban, and uh, I was playing in a high school football game, and the local paper took my photo and labeled it incorrectly as Balabam. So all my teammates started calling me Bam, 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 and Bammer, because I, I kind of have a Bam, Bam personality from the Flintstones, if you you know that show. And yes. that stayed with me, you know, right up into my mid to late 20s. Most of my friends just call me Bam. And um, then later in life, I was transferred with a job to Tokyo. And I was suddenly going to be 12-hour time zones away from family and friends, and I needed to stay in touch with them. And that was back when not everybody had email or you had business email, but not personal. So I got myself a computer and a personal email address, and I decided to call it Bammer47, my football jersey number from college at AOL.com. And then about five years ago, when I created my Instagram account, I figured, eh, rather than call it Mike Balaban, I'll call it Bammer47. When I grew to about 2,000 followers uh, a year or two later, I remember thinking, you know, maybe I should make this name more uh, more indicative of what the content's about. So I asked mm-hmm. my followers, should I call this accidental gay historian? And they're like, oh, God, no, we love Bammer. So I think it has kind of a punchy, catchy, grinder, Google, growler type, you know, sound to it. So it that's totally what I does. use. And I basically have Bammer.co is our website. Bammer and me is my podcast series and Bammer 47 is my Instagram. I love it. So how did you become this accidental gay historian? I left my career in banking and consulting with Asia as my focus about five, six years ago. And I have been simultaneously serving on nonprofit boards for 25 years. I'm still doing that. Uh, three, Three LGTB nonprofits. But I'm the kind of person that uh, goes stir crazy if I'm not really busy. Mm. And 
the three nonprofits just wasn't enough. So clearly, also, that's too little work for <laughs> for anyone. <laughs> so I also had begun taking photos with a single lens reflex camera, and I got my first one of those at about 24. And I taught myself how to use them, you know, uh, f-stop and shutter speeds and all those things, but I never took any instruction. And I just had this need when I went away on vacations or at special occasions to pull out my camera and photograph it so I would remember what I looked like, what my friends looked like, what those experiences were like, rather than having the memory in my brain. Mm. And I was diligent about it. I mean, I was... I was spending $100 on developing costs after a vacation in 1983 when that was a lot of money because it was that important to me. And I would, you know, number them on the backs and put them in order and then reduce it down to the most Photoshop worthy. You know, I mean, the, the, right. most, the ones I wanted to show off. And I'd take them to brunch and dinners with friends for a week after a vacation and tell them all about my trip to Rio for Carnival. And then they were tired of hearing it. I was tired of talking about it. So I put them in an album until the next trip and then the next trip. And I have 25 years worth of photos from 76 to 2001 when I switched over fully to digital mm-hmm. and sitting in albums, about 6,000 of them. And, wow. you know, they're not, they're not all LGTB, they're family and friends and what have you, but a lot of them, like a third of them are guys in Speedos and people that I either met or slept with or wanted to sleep with or what have mm-hmm. you. And uh, they're there sitting there and, I never showed them to anybody because I didn't think anybody cared. And I even, I remember showing them my last partner of 12 years and about halfway through the second album, he goes, I've seen enough. So I figured if he didn't want to see him, nobody else would. So that was it until for some reason, I put a few up of my vintage photos on Instagram in 2016 or 17. And instead of my 10 likes, I got 50. And mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't even know what a hashtag was. I had like 90 followers and 90 photos. Just It was just there because I knew you were supposed to have one. And I started doing that. I started getting rid of the straight family photos and putting up only gay ones. And then I started writing a narrative. Initially, it was like, this is me and so and so and so. So in Rio and this year, and here's what's going on. And then I started telling longer stories. And then I started talking about issues that prevailed back then versus now and then engaging my followers and asking them their views on it and taking surveys and basically creating a community by engaging mm-hmm. people around our history through my own personal journey. And I, not to tap myself on the back, but uh, I kind of developed a reputation for authenticity. And the reason is yeah. I, you know, I'm no longer beholden to a corporate employer. I'm out mm-hmm. with all my family, all my friends know, no one has any leverage over me. I have nothing that I need to be ashamed or concerned about somebody else finding out. So I do things like I ask in one of my posts, have you ever paid for sex? I have three times. Mm-hmm. I tell them two of them because there wasn't room for the third. And of course, 15 of my followers in the comments, like, what about the third? What about the third? So, um, you know, it's, it's engaging our community on issues that matter that are often spoken about, but you rarely see in writing all focused around the photos that I took that usually but not always deal with the issues of the day. And that was how I got started. And then I had a lot of people urge me to issue a, a coffee table book with narratives. And eventually after 500 or 1,000, was like, why aren't you doing a book? I'd buy it. Why aren't you on Netflix? 
And uh, <laughs> I, I contacted a friend who introduced me to a couple of agents. And it became apparent that the, the publishing industry is not what it used to be. It's no longer push a button and the bookstores sell 50,000 copies. Now it's all social media. Yeah. And publishers don't know social media or even care to learn about it. They will only give out contracts to people whose books they know the authors can sell. You are right. expected to bring them your followers if you're an Instagram influencer, your fans if you're a celebrity, and you know, and your fans if you're an already published author. Otherwise, good luck getting a contract. So you can self-publish, sell 500 copies, and have a nice little vanity project and pat yourself on the back. I have no desire to do that. I, I really want to make an impact. I want to. I want to change our lives for the better. I mean, that sounds really grandiose, but uh, on a on a basic level, that's my hope. And I do that by sharing the things I think we need to hear that we're not always told. Trying to make it so that younger people would want to learn more about where they came from. But just to kind of go push back a little bit on your ageism thing, definitely there's ageism throughout society, not only in our LGBTQ community, but I actually find to a degree that there's less ageism now than there was when I was coming up. In mm. the 70s at 24, I have to I have to put you in the frame of mind that I was in back then, or my generation. Please do. That is what I'm here for. Okay. We knew that there were jobs available for us, not necessarily, you know, the first time you asked, but pretty readily. And they would last 20 years years that we did a good job if we wanted them to. Unlike today, where there aren't very many, they probably only last two years and your entire industry may disappear while you're working for it, right? So, mm-hmm. so we had the security of knowing we could find a path through life economically, financially. We also looked ahead to the generation older than us who were, in my case, gay men. And they were self-loathing. They had been raised to hate themselves for being gay. So there was a bitchy humor that came out as a kind of a deflection of that self-loathing quality. Um, there was a lot of alcoholism, drinking after work and just drowning your sorrows. I mean, I'm painting a bad picture. Not everybody was that way, obviously. But And they didn't go to the gym and work out. They were drinking instead. So my generation now, we've made it through successfully. Yeah. We're in shape. We work out. We are not self-loathing. We feel pretty damn good about ourselves. And younger people, not all, but quite a lot of them look up to us because how did we do it? And they really wanted to come to us because we can give them advice and insight and knowledge based on their experience in most cases. And we can also lend our Rolodexes and our networks, if Rolodex is an old-fashioned word, but our connections to help them in their careers. So there's ways we can be useful that the older generation were not going to be useful to me. Mm. And that's why I think daddies are popular. And that's why I can't shake off the 19 to 29 year olds when what I really would like is a 45 or 55 year old. Um, right. They're, they're all married, you know, not in great shape, not very attractive or kind of emotionally disturbed. Right. Um, I'm I, again, exaggerating, but right. so that's what it, the way it was back then. I didn't look to them for anything. I didn't need them. And today's mm. generation may not need us, but frankly, they could benefit from what we can offer if they befriended us. And, and let me totally. make clear, it's not a one-way street. I feel like my, I, I am close to a lot of young people because of my Instagram and my website. Um, I'm, I'm going hiking with a 20-odd-year-old guy and his, on his birthday with his friends this Saturday. 
uh, potato chip rock or something outside San Diego here. And, uh, you know, who knows? I, I'm game for anything. Uh, but so cool. what they offer me is they keep me young. Mm. They keep me connected to what's current. I wouldn't know what thirst traps and OnlyFans were if I weren't <laughs> involved with people that age and if I weren't having this Instagram account, right? Um, right. I've got a 95-year-old podcast interviewee who was a World War II uh, Navy navigator, shot down in the North Sea and almost drowned uh, during the war. And this guy's amazing. And I tell him I want to be like him. He's a generation ahead of me. He At 96, actually, now, he's on Facebook and likes all my posts. And he gets all his entertainment from YouTube versus my 92-year-old mother who won't even use email. So <laughs> stay young. And how do you do that? By staying connected to the next generation. And so you guys, your age bracket, can provide me with that energy and that connection to what comes next so I don't grow old prematurely, right? And, you know, yeah. I mean, not to put a burden on you, some of you are probably going to be there for me when I'm in an assisted living facility. So there, mm-hmm. there's a give and get, a quid pro quo that comes from the exchange of, of value. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mean to put it strictly in economic terms because the people that I'm meeting are truly my friends. But a lot of people my age only know people their own age. And that's yeah. their closed-mindedness, but it's also the closed-mindedness of a lot of younger people who aren't reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So what like i agree with you 100% on, on all of it and thank you also for sharing and expanding our view on wait a minute th- there's a difference between the way generations used to interact and now it's actually great to hear i didn't was not aware of that that there is this new openness that is quite different than it used to be that's fantastic i looked at, I, the biggest thing that surprised me when i started putting up these photos Obviously, I, I didn't realize they were going to be popular. But when they started to be popular, my expectations, the people that are going to like this photo to, that I'm posting today are going to be my friends who know me mm-hmm. or who are in them. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to be other guys my age who recognize, oh, that's Mykonos. Oh, that's Rio. Oh, that's Fire Island or Provincetown. Right? Right. And the exact opposite happened. My largest fan base, if I can be so bold, are people in their 20s, 30s, and maybe 40s, and the fewest are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Why? Well, I've I've kind of come up with two explanations. First, you know, I'm 68. I'll be 69 later this month, and I'm proud of my age. I have no sense of embarrassment. I, you know, what have I got to, you know, be embarrassed about, right? I've lived a rich life. I've done a lot. I'm doing a lot. I'm going to do a lot more. And oh, yeah. Everyone should be so lucky. So, um, however, a lot of guys my age are not really proud of it. I mean, God, I can't believe it when I hear guys saying, oh, my God, I'm going to be 30. That's so old. Or 40. <laughs> that's so old. Right? I you don't know, understand that, to be honest. Sake, live your life and enjoy every minute of it. It's short. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we just lost a year out of it, right, to this damn disease. So, what happens is guys my age don't want to admit how old they are. And if you're going to comment on my Instagram about a photo and say, I was there or I've been there or what, you're more or less admitting your age. And a lot of guys just aren't into that. But the bigger issue is all the guys my age who lived through AIDS and who lost, as I did, many, many close friends and lovers. And out of that, such pain was created that is still 
residing within us and we haven't necessarily resolved it and put it in its proper place and acknowledge the good that those people left with us, even though they're no longer here. And if you can't deal with the pain, thinking back to those years is going to bring it up. And therefore, you don't want to look at my photos because it makes you think of that. Mm. So that's why I would say maybe as many as a third of the young people I meet are really interested in learning about the kind of stuff that we cover, you know, knowing where it came from, what it was like versus now and talking about it. Yeah, there are two thirds that are too busy with their own life and having fun or whatever. But, you know, sooner or later, they're going to get here and, and they're going to be interested as well. Yeah, I've always been friends with people that were older than me. I mean, when I was a kid, I think my I had like one or two friends that I kind of hung out with that were around my age, but mostly like my close friends were about eight years older than me or more. And I always liked hanging out with my parents, friends. I just always wanted to learn from people that were wiser and more experienced than me. I've always appreciated that. That's unusual. And I, you know, I don't know if that's what they call an old soul or if that's different, but um, it's, it's always fun when you meet people that are apart from their age group. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious because I'm curious what you're willing to, to share with us about your experience living through the AIDS epidemic. I don't have a lot of knowledge around that. I think I, let's like be really super honest here. I think I probably, because I didn't have to deal with as much fear around it, um, you know, especially with the invention of prep and everything over the last few years, I don't think that I really lived through any period of time where it was like a top concern on my mind. And I think I just had a vague idea about it and out of fear, like I don't really didn't really want to learn about it. And then HBO came out with that show. It's a sin. And it's one of the most moving shows I have ever seen. Have you watched it? Yes. And unfortunately I'm glad it was made and I'm glad it's bringing attention to the era. I don't like it at all. I think it takes paper thin characters, stereotypical you know, mm-hmm. the one black guy, the one, the saintly woman who has no life other than helping gay men, the innocent <laughs> guy who has sex with one guy and dies. You know, it's, they mentioned condoms once, right? right? When the guy couldn't get, keep it up and had to take it off. It's like we changed our behavior probably more than any other group ever overnight into using condoms or not using condoms because we had to. And there's no mention of that amazing accomplishment, right? Mm. So I understand. See, this is like, what I want. Yeah, tell us all the things, because that was like my only exposure. And I was like, oh, shoot, there's an entire history here that I have missed out on and avoided learning about. And I want to learn about it. So, yeah, open. Rusty Davies, having done Queer as Folk, which also had soap opera-like characters, you know, stereotypes, like four different types and puts them together. But you know Mm -hmm. what? He had a platform and he used it and he fought really hard. And even there, he was supposed to have eight episodes and one or two more characters and they cut him back. So I get the pressures he was dealing with, but that said, even though it's great that it was made and it brings people attention to it and hopefully makes them want to read and learn more about and to go to more trustworthy sources, Mm -hmm. right? It, it really 
did a disservice in terms of giving you a clear picture of what it was like. Mm. We, 1981, August, I mean, July 2nd, I think, Friday, I was in Fire Island at my coffee table with my housemates, reading the New York Times, an article by Lawrence Altman, MD, on gay can- cancer discovered in gay men. We read this little one-column thing, and we thought, ah, I wonder if that'll have anything to do with us. And it didn't for quite a while. I mean, if you were in the circles that partied and had sex every weekend at the, you know, the Infinity and Flamingo discos downtown or whatever, you started having friends die earlier. But most of us, I was a professional on Wall Street, closeted there, but not among my friends. And for us, it took probably till 84, 85, 86 before it started to hit home. Now, we changed our behavior quickly because we didn't want to take a chance. Many of us began wearing rubbers. No Mm -hmm. point risking. But it, my first, my best friend died in, 18, in 1986, seven days after he collapsed, never having been diagnosed because he refused to go to a doctor. When they started to figure it out, he changed doctors. He didn't want to know. Mm. And he worked on a Monday or Tuesday, passed out, got taken to the hospital, in a coma, came out, was at home. His father came up to visit him, came out of the coma on Monday night, didn't want to see any of us, and died on Tuesday. And we got together. We all knew he was behaving badly. We all kept telling him to change. Every one of us, he would tell us what we wanted to hear because he wanted to be loved by us. Yeah, as soon as this happens, I'm going to do that. But he never changed. He kept behaving in a self-destructive fashion, Mm -hmm. having promiscuous sex without condoms, drinking a lot, drugging a lot. And it it cost him. And we got together at at the kind of wake afterwards and Every one of us compared notes and felt guilty, like we should have gotten together and intervened as a group. And in the end, Chris was going to do what Chris was going to do. Yeah. But and some level, he did us a service because all of our other friends who took months or years to die, and and, and we we're with them in, in the hospital, and the, you know, and tending to them, and then cleaning up after them when they pass away, so their homes were sanitized before their parents came in and found the sex toys or the porn tapes. You know, all of that we managed to miss because Chris died in seven days. But it suddenly hits home when your best friend disappears from the earth with no warning. And then the next year, another close friend died. And then they began coming one after the other. So the second half of the 80s, but the entire decade, I just remember every time I got a sore throat. And once they had a test, I went to the doctor and got tested. Every time you had a pimple, you worried. This was a sign that you you had contracted it. And so you can't live without every single hiccup, meaning you might be dying. You still wow. try to have fun. You still party. You still go on vacation. But you're looking over your shoulder the whole time. And it wasn't until 95, 96 when protease inhibitors, the cocktails, were developed, and probably until another couple of years after when they became widely available, that you began to look at AIDS as a manageable disease. So we went from 81 when it was discovered to 84, 5, 6 when it really became prevalent in our lives to the late 90s when we could stop worrying in the same way, much less prep being introduced, what, around 2011 or 12, I think. Mm-hmm. Sounds like 20 years of COVID. Yes, there's a lot of similarities. I, in fact, did a Zoom session that's available on YouTube comparing uh, HIV to COVID. And we had uh, Eric Sawyer, one of the co-founders of ACT UP. And your generation may not even know what that was, but it was a, a resistance organization trying to fight for 
attention to AIDS and budget dollars to research a cure um, and providing housing for those of us who got kicked out of our homes or lost our jobs. Uh, he was a co-founder of ACT UP. And then uh, Dr. Howard Grossman, who was uh, getting out of med school in Brooklyn in 1981 when AIDS hit and became one of the go-to doctors in Chelsea, the epicenter of AIDS in the early 80s. I got them on a call together with me and a co-host, uh, Caleb Holland, and we interviewed them about the similarities and differences, the lessons we learned as gay men having gone through this that might be helpful now in COVID, what the new normal will look like, why there's not more of an uproar and, you know, and a rebellion now the way there was with ACT UP in 1987. And it's a fascinating comparison. So look for it on YouTube if you're interested or contact me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Maybe um, let's get the link for that and put it in the show notes for everyone so that they can, can find that. I'll make a note for myself to ask you to get that. So tell us a little bit about what what's one of your favorite guests that you've had on your show? I'm going to give you like a paragraph about three because I can't pick one. Oh, well, that's even better. Edward, Edward Field, 96 now year old, World War II veteran navigator who had an affair with his boot camp sergeant in boot camp uh, while training to go into the war in front of all the other barracks, troops in the barrack. And then ended up talking about being gay in Europe in World War II and afterwards. And, and he's a world renowned poet. And he's just a fount of knowledge about what it was like all the way from the 30s when he used to have sex as he was hitchhiking on Long Island to now. Wow. And by the, way, by the way, he admits to masturbating to photos of his late lover of 58 years in his 20s in the nude, even now at 96. So mm. you can have a sex life, maybe not the same kind or as much, no matter how old you are. So that's number yeah. one. Number two. Uh, about two months ago, I had a couple of interviews that are going to be posted soon with Khalid Ahmed, who is an Ethiopian Civil War refugee whose family fled when he was five with six siblings, picking up six orphans along the way, spending eight years in refugee camps in Kenya, getting asylum in the U.S. in 99, and there's a long journey, including having a boyfriend in, high, in college die of cancer. And now he's a cardiac surgeon at 35, and he volunteers to three nights a week in a refugee center and two days a week in a food bank. So every Islamic questioning youth and every refugee in the world trying to get elsewhere should hear his story to be inspired about what one can accomplish. And he's got the most, the greatest equanimity of anybody I know, just really even tempered, very little emotion. When his lover died of cancer and he acted in this interview like, I have a bit different relationship with death than you do because I saw bodies strewn along the highway when we were fleeing Somalia when I was five. He then admitted when we dug deeper that he gained 100 pounds afterwards because after the, the loss of his lover um, over two years. So we all react in different ways. He just doesn't show it. Uh, yeah. The third one, the third one uh, this will probably be a little more titillating. Um, Stu Fenton is a former cult model. And for your generation, probably this cult was the glossy porn you know, $30 uh -huh. from guys with hard-ons, et cetera. And he did that, and he was a male escort, and he was a lap dancer for a time in Montreal. But he's from Australia. And I met him in in the in Fire Island by a pool in 99, and all I knew was he was from Australia, and he was there for the summer. I didn't know anything else. Near the end of chatting with him, lying in a chaise lounge, looking hunky as he was, I said, do you mind if I take a couple of photos of him? So I took three, and he's got the biggest, most gorgeous thighs. And 
I posted them 20 years later on my Instagram and somebody in Australia recognized them and connected me with him where he was working in Thailand. And we become friends. He was supposed to be with me in April, but COVID hit and he had to turn around and leave LA and go back to Australia. But, you know, we, oh, we talk man. all the time. And what happened was he, he had a boyfriend who was a male escort and he wasn't, and he was jealous. So the boyfriend said, well, why don't you try it? He thought, well, maybe I'll be less jealous if I'm out doing it too. Crazy logic, but uh, they were <laughs> male escorts and they were this hot A-list couple going around having sex for money, going to parties and drugging. And then the boyfriend breaks up with him. And if you've ever read The Velvet Rage, it talks about how our lack mm -hmm. of self-worth and validation as youth growing up in straight families and nobody to, to basically tell us you're, you're good as you are. It comes out in different ways when we're adults as gays. And often it's drugs and sex and alcohol. Mm. And when this boyfriend broke with him, his low self-esteem played out in the way that he got into drugs and disco and whatever. And he had 40 overdoses, 30 psychotic breaks, and four wake-ups in emergency rooms where the doctor's asking you, you're trying to kill yourself. Mm. And finally, cutting to the chase, he ended up 10 years back in school getting graduate degrees in rehab and drug counseling. And as a gestalt therapist and a world-renowned lecturer on how to pull out of, uh, out of addiction in the LGTB community. How? So, and you can find him on, on Google under the porn name, Dick Huge. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> how that for three different examples. Oh, how freaking awesome is that? I, what a beautiful illustration he is too, of that the, the experiences we have in life are really here to teach us and prepare us for something. And I'm certain he wasn't thinking that during, during those years, but well, now as he puts it, if I, hadn't, if I hadn't gone through all of that, I wouldn't be where I am and have my career. So he, he had to go through that downside to end up where he is now. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And I'm but glad you, you brought up the velvet rage. Just to give you an example, uh, yeah. you maybe you, we met on Clubhouse for those mm -hmm. in the audience who aren't aware of this app that is going around. And uh, I don't know if you were in our LGBTQ storytelling room on Clubhouse, and there's another one this afternoon, by the way. Um, but one of the guys talked about how he was on the verge of committing suicide in his teens. Life was just not going well. He was being bullied, everything. And his father suddenly got ill and died. And the only thing between him and suicide was the thought of leaving his mother to grieve for both his dad and him. So he's here mm -hmm. today because his father died. Mm -hmm. So you want to talk about what comes before and how it sets us up for what comes after? There's no better illustration than that. Yeah. Wow. It's, um, it is interesting, like, you know, the things that are placed in our lives at, at certain times to really reveal things to us. And uh, The Velvet Rage, too, is a great book. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a um, great psychological look at the kind of rage, well, the rage behind a lot of gay men. There is a more recent I want to say version of it, but it's not by the same guy, but apparently, and I have the name somewhere, I'll try to get it to you, but I was told about. I also, even though I think it has a great deal of applicability to a lot of people, I don't mm -hmm. think it's universally applicable. No. I, for, I, for example, didn't experience that, but I know many people who did. Yeah. 
Um, that was, I, I have a queer book club with a friend, um, that we, that we host and, uh, we read it in there and that was one of the things that we discussed. Okay. There's some, a really good look at these things from the point of a psychologist. And then a lot of the things too, were not applicable to everyone in the club. And it was great to kind of have that conversation. So thank you for noting that that's a good thing to keep in mind. If someone reads the book, you might not read, not everything in there is going to necessarily resonate with you. Um, yeah. What's one of your favorite stories that you've shared on your Instagram? Oh God. I mean, I've, I've got a thousand of them, right? (laughs) Hard to narrow it down. What's a recent one? Maybe. Sorry again. Maybe share a recent one. I, I now vacillate between talking about, so I, the most recent one, and I would not say favorite because it's an AIDS story. I, I, I talked about how I had an affair in Fire Island in 1980 with another house guest in the house that I was guesting in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Chicago. I was from New York. I didn't realize that he was supposed to be the boy toy of somebody else in the house that weekend, but he and I snuck around and had a little fling. And the next summer, I visited him in Chicago. And in between, another friend had moved to Chicago, and I introduced them to each other. And when I got out there, the three of us and another couple that they knew all went for a, a beach trip for the day to the Indiana Dunes National Shore, seashore. It's about an hour and a half outside of Chicago along the southern end, edge of Mich- uh, Lake Michigan. It looks like any ocean beach. And it was okay. a lot of fun. And I've got the number of photos up on the post on Instagram. And when I look at that photo now, there are five of us. And three of the guys are dead of AIDS. The fourth guy, the guy that I'd had the affair with, and I don't mention his real name because he wouldn't want this known, but he hasn't had sex with another human being since the late 80s out of trauma from mm. AIDS. And so of the five of us, I'm the only one alive and having a somewhat normal life. And that's just a, in a microcosm what AIDS did to my generation. Mm. Wow. What was, what was it like coming out? When did you come out? You know, I'm I'm kind of unusual in that I had an easier time telling people when I decided to. Okay. Than I did finding a place in the gay subculture. But huh. but coming out wasn't easy. I grew up in a deep South conservative region where it was racially segregated, alcoholically dry, all Baptists and Methodists, and we were the only Jewish family. Hmm. And so I was different from the word from the word go. And you were bullied if you didn't play sports. And I quickly realized that. So I made sure I joined all the sports teams and learned to love sports as a result. I played through college because I love it, but also deep down inside, some part of me knew I was attracted to boys and there were no gays in sports. Everybody knew that back then. Of course, that's not the case. Right. But if I, if I kept playing sports, that meant I was straight. So oh. for me, my identity was all wrapped up in what I was doing. Mm. And then I got out of college. I played football, I pole vaulted, and I played rugby at college, and I loved them all. Got out of college, got my first, in grad school, got my first job, and I'm miserable because I no longer got sports to hide behind. And I can't really be who I probably am meant to be, but I don't even know that yet. And by the way, at that time, they'd just taken homosexuality off the list of diagnostic mental disorders in 73. You could have been given brain treatments, you know, shock treatments till then. So 
This was not something that people readily admitting to others. And I'm starting to realize I can't avoid it. I can't hide from this anymore. But I don't think I can be me. Why? And I don't mean to be disrespectful. But the only people I saw who, and there were no role models on TV, and there were no role models in the movies. The only examples of anybody who was thought to be gay were sad characters who killed themselves or got killed or ended up in prison, which was the moral of the story by the end of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. And so you didn't want to be that way. So the only people who were were those who couldn't avoid it, who couldn't hide, who couldn't pass it straight. And I didn't identify with them. Mm -hmm. I was this masculine, normal athlete, you know, and where are the people like me who are gay? There are none. So I stayed in hidden because I didn't think I could be myself. And then all of a sudden, I'm on the way to work, and I stop at a newsstand, and I see this headline, four-part series on homosexuality in sports, December 1975. That was unheard of. And the, and the, the, the byline was, Dave Cope, former Washington Redskin NFL pro, comes out. I'm like, oh, wow. shit. The jock, and he's gay? Maybe that means I'm gay. I mean, I thought I was, but I didn't want it. Maybe it means I can be gay, right? Mm. If he's doing it. So I wrote him a letter, care of the, the newspaper. And I don't know if I thought he would answer. I almost didn't put my return address because people had been fired from the government not too many years before for being gay. And I was afraid my government job might be at risk. But if I don't put my return address, how's he going to answer my plea for advice? Mm. So a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call. He looked up my number and invited me out for drinks. Are you kidding and me? No, and he became a, a, just a bar buddy, but a mentor, a, a role model. Yeah. If, if, he, if he can do it and be masculine and happy and out, then I can. And a month later, I told my first friend I thought I was gay. So that's yeah. my coming out story. And Dave wrote a, an autobiography with a co-author, Perry Dean Young, who unfortunately passed away from cancer two years ago. And I met Perry back then as well. And that book was a bestseller on the New York Times in 1977, 78. And it's out of print now. And your generation's never heard of him. So mm. Bammer is going to be reissuing the book. We Dave signed a contract and Perry's heir signed a contract. We're going to be reissuing that book in Amazon print on demand, Kindle and Audible formats later this year so that everybody in your generation should know who one of our gay heroes was. And, you know, I've gotten some pushback because, you know, I'm a gay white man and I've got privilege. And Dave is a gay white man and he had privilege, although at that time it wasn't very much. And so, look, I recognize we're not representing people of color and trans and everybody else. I'm not trying to say just because Dave is a hero for having stood up and, by the way, having paid a price because he was never even given an interview for the coaching job he wanted in college or pros because he was a known homosexual. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying that he is a role model who Colin Kaepernick today who refused to play football because they wouldn't let him play without, if he, if he kneeled for the, the national, uh, national anthem, he couldn't have a contract. And he stood up for what he believed. Well, guess what? Dave Cope was the first guy that did that. There's a direct line from Dave to Colin. And those heroes should be remembered whatever their you know, demographic silo that they, they exist in. So Dave is an LGBTQ hero that every one of us should know and, and, and pay homage to. And so we're mm -hmm. going to make sure that that's available to the next generation. Yeah. Keep the heroes coming. No, no hero has to be put down in order to make another, you know, visible or anything. I really, the, 
view of okay well it's not it's not as valid or not as uh useful because there's some kind of you know gay male white privilege there i hear that but also it doesn't make it any less doesn't make him any less of a hero well your generation i I credit and blame your generation i credit you for for breaking down barriers and being very inclusive in many ways. There's a lot of discrimination as well, but yeah. you know, trying to bring together all parts of us, right? Yeah. But sometimes you can be really hard line, not realizing that things weren't always that way. And it's not necessarily as easy as it looks. So there's mm-hmm. both a pro and a minus. But the other thing is I want to, I want to be very clear to anybody going to any of my social media, my Instagram might in, inflame somebody who's looking for people of color because there aren't many in it because when you came out of Ivy League schools and you went to Wall Street investment banks, the number of other people in there who were black were very mm-hmm. small. My best friend is black. I know what that sounds like. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but I'm saying there weren't a lot of opportunities. And so why didn't I go to Harlem and look for black friends? Who knows? The point is, that era, you didn't see a lot of mixing. Today, there's a lot more. So when you go to my page and you see a lot of gay white men in Speedos, and you go, where are the other people? Please understand it was those times, all right? Number one. Mm. But just to make up for that, a very good black friend of mine who was a tackle on the University of Maryland football team, and he's 30-something years of age, he was a lot younger, he said, Mike, if you want to get rid of these haters, I've got an idea. So I joined him at an all-black LGTB cultural and arts weekend in Cancun two Memorial Days ago. There were 322 people, and I was one of two whites. And mm-hmm. I went. I get an exposure up close and experience. And there was some skepticism of me being there at first because what's this blogger doing here? But by right. the end, I, was, I, I really felt at home and it was wonderful. And it gave me a real sense of things. And the biggest thing I learned as a takeaway was that if you're a person of color and you're LGBTQ, you are in two minorities, whereas a gay white man, I'm only in one. And yeah. the result, most of those people put their skin color ahead of their sexual orientation or gender identity because they can't hide it. Right. And so that, that group was half women and half men. You go into any large group of gays, it's going to be 150 men and maybe two women, right? Because the women socialize by themselves and the men socialize. In the gay black community, there's a lot more integration. In any event, uh, I just want people to be aware that while Instagram is pretty plain vanilla. We're trying and want to make Bammer and and me, the podcast series and Bammer.co, the website, as inclusive as possible. So hence interviewing this Somalian guy I met who's now a really good friend of mine. He just texted me to let me know his mother died the other day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm interviewing, I interviewed a 49-year-old British lesbian on Monday. I'm mm-hmm. hopefully going to interview a 30-year-old transgender woman whose story is amazing. Long story short, she was trying to do what I did and hide it for so long. She had two wives and a baby mama as a guy and Mm. has four kids. Mm. And at 36, six foot one, 220 pounds of muscle, finally acknowledged she'd always known she was a woman from age four and transitioned surgically and otherwise hormones, et cetera. And is now a six foot one, 180 pound woman. And her oldest child at 15 who lives in Ecuador with her mother, this original guy's original wife, um, she came out to her daughter on the phone, and the daughter in turn came out to her as lesbian and gender non-binary. So I'm hopefully oh. going to go to them on an interview together. 
Oh, that would be so neat. So my point is, I want to be inclusive. I'm sorry if I haven't always been able to be as inclusive as your generation is now, but please cut us some slack. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We love you. We're here to support you. And um, we're thankful for you supporting us. Um, And yeah, what I was trying to say right before that is just that we don't need to invalidate anyone's experience in order to validate another's. And so, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. We need it. We want to see it. And we want, there's so much good that can come with it. And the more people that come out, the more people that come out, right? Let's never use any opportunity to be stifling anyone in our own community. We can continue to keep helping everyone be totally authentically themselves. And that's a wonderful thing. I have several goals. One, of course, is to educate younger LTDBQ is to bring our generations together, right? To help mm-hmm. them know where we came from and what our history is about. The second is just to make sure this history is there for future generations, for posterity, and that we control the narrative, not others. Yeah. And the third one is, I honestly believe if we were talking to each other and telling each other our stories, that we'd be much more understanding of each other. Yes. And the difference in the world, we can create community through storytelling. So mm-hmm. this is about trying to bring us all together through, through our stories and our shared experiences. Yeah, I love it. Mike, I love what you're doing. I'm so thankful that you were able to come here and share stories with us today. This has been phenomenal. Is there any like last word of advice that you want to give to our listeners? I would just suggest that you try to judge each person as the individual they are. And that requires getting to know them, mm. listening and learning. I know I'm doing a lot of talking here, but I also like to listen. Well, you're yeah. also the guest, so <laughs> you're supposed to do the talking. But I mean, you know, it really takes looking at who you're dealing with and mm-hmm. being compassionate. Mm-hmm. And you don't deviate from your goals of, for example, inclusiveness or acceptance. But you also have to find ways to meet in the middle, to understand each other, to, you know, to feel closer. And if we did that, we wouldn't have this partisan world that's tearing us apart right now. But all we can worry about is our own community. I mean, look at, you know, people like, what's her name, Jenner coming out as trans and she's anti-trans while she's running for governor. It's like, I don't understand these self-loathing LGBTQers. It's just, if you're going to love yourself, then love others who are like you. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's what I want us to do is to find ways to connect and through connecting to have a sense of belonging. Mm. Yes. Amazing. All right. I'll, we'll link up in the show notes, but tell everyone once again, how the, how do they find you, Mike? My Instagram is B A M M E R Bammer 47. Our website is www.bammer.co or just bammer.co. And the podcast is Bammer and Me. The and is spelled out. Uh, and you can find that on the website under our podcast section, or you can find it on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, all the main podcast platforms. So please feel free to contact me directly. Uh, the easiest way would either be on Instagram or at Mike at Bammer.co. Uh, by the way, we give... Uh, writing workshops to teach people how to write their stories. We try to 
help you figure out how to be a better storyteller if you want to tell yours. We'd love to have those stories on our site, but we don't. Look, I don't want people to feel I'm just doing this to, to kind of dig up more stories. I, I really want people to come in touch with themselves. And a lot of it is, is dealing with your memory and dealing with unresolved issues and coming to grips with them. So hopefully people are better off after they've written their stories. But in any event, anybody wants to get in touch with you for any of those reasons or just to talk about community or, you know, age gap relationships or what have you, uh, I'm available. I love it. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a joy. What a great conversation. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. All right, y'all. Check out the show notes for all of that information. We'll put up Mike's contact info as well as all of his links. And have a wonderful week. See you on the next episode. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with a friend so they too can become more confident. You can also help more people find the show by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. And if you want to become a more confident queer with support from yours truly, head to coachalexray.com or use the link down in the show notes. I'm looking forward to working with you.